You're listening to Around Comics, episode 162. Chicago, this is Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. I'm Christopher Neesman, and I'll be your guide for the next hour plus of comic book news, information, and entertainment. I'd like to wish everyone a happy new year, and to mark the occasion, we have quite an episode planned for you today. In just a couple moments, you'll hear a conversation between myself, Tom Caters, and comic superstar Alex Ross. After that, we get you caught up with the week's events in wire-to-wire comic book news. Tom Caters is back as the answer man. The quiet panelologists at work continue their A to Z, or Z, of British comics. Will Pfeiffer has his best of 2000 DVD list. Jeremy Mullins has webcomic recommendations. And we get you ready for the week ahead with new trade paperback and collected releases, as well as single issue releases. All of that and more is next on Around Comics. This episode of Around Comics is brought to you by InStockTrades.com. And InStockTrades is happy to welcome Alex Ross to the program and remind you that you can pick up the Justice Volume 1 and 3 hardcovers as well as the Heroes hardcover, Marvel's trade paperback, Kingdom Come trade paperback, and the Absolute Kingdom Come all at great discounted prices. InStockTrades.com offers a huge selection of the collected editions you need. InStockTrades is your source for trade paperbacks, deluxe hardcovers, essentials, showcases, archives, absolute editions, omnibus editions, and more, all at great discounted prices. And remember that all orders over $50 ship for free. There are very few creators that create the kind of buzz in comics that Alex Ross does. He's been capturing the attention of comic fans for well over a decade now. His art is unmistakable and has a unique flair for the iconic. Tom Caters and I had the opportunity to talk with Alex in mid-December. We'll jump right into the conversation, talking about how he approaches different projects. The amount of work and detail that goes into what you do, I think that you have obviously longer time frames to to work with, and you can plan out these long-term projects, but the the kind of monthly cycle of comics kind of lends itself to mediocrity. Um, (laughs) I mean, seriously, because you have to churn out stuff, you know, as as you approach projects, you know, is it, is it nice to be able to say, Hey, this is a project that we're going to work on for the next two or three years. And we're going to be able to make this the best product that we can. Well, it's great for any creative person and the few people that get a chance to do that. That always should be some kind of, uh, uh, good way to know at least the time that you need to make it the best that you're capable of making it will be there but if you're concerned about how people react to that project as a part of uh, the overall pop culture they're enjoying and and absorbing they will look down upon your long-awaited project as often not as important as the 
the new event book or the book that's having a character die or, you know, whatever thing is molesting the, cur the current universe character you care about at the moment. So if you want your product to have a certain amount of pop culture impact, you're missing it if you have to have such a long build-up start time for the thing to get underway. Well, you talk about the the event book and everything that's going in comics right now, and you look at a couple different projects that that one that you just finished on and one that you're that you're getting ready to to go into. Uh, Justice didn't have to deal with present day continuity. It's you have kind of this this little sandbox that you can play in. But looking forward to Avengers Invaders, that's going to be in in Marvel continuity. What kind of approach do you take in different projects like that? Is Avengers uh, Invaders, do you kind of have to step lightly because it's going to be in continuity? Uh, you have to be as advised as possible by everybody on that side of the fence who can tell you what you can and can't do or shouldn't try. You know, I mean, we can go into certain areas and create a whole way of approaching, you know, like a, a good example is uh, the character of Spider-Woman is in our series, and will she have any greater resolution to her leaving the one group of Avengers for the other group of Avengers that we should account for, or can we kind of move ahead with sort of creating some of that um, characterization ourselves and establish that disconnect between her old teammates and the way she might be working with the new ones, you know, and if we're not informed better about how they're planning on doing that in the monthly book, then, you know, we can't make too many steps forward as much as we'd like. Well, I, I think it's kind of interesting because to tie it into that Avengers, uh, Invaders, and uh, the Justice, the other project that you're coming out with, uh, Superpowers, uh, sort of interests me because I think for myself and a lot of people, when they think of you, they think of iconic superhero characters that people know and recognize, and they recognize yours as like the iconic version, but yet you are taking these characters that, nothing against the people that created them, but they're sort of forgotten and cast off. You know, historically, I mean, was there something that drew you to uh, to characters like that this time around and doing something creatively? Well, I mean, a lot of what influences me from my childhood is absorption of the whole uh, historical nature of comics and what was big and in the biggest period of comics of the 1940s, where it was a, a field about ten times bigger than the one we know today. These characters ruled. They were some of the biggest properties in that time period, particularly a character like the Golden Age Daredevil, um, that you know, which we're using. And I've always looked back at these odd characters which didn't transfer through the years like so many of the DC and Marvel ones do, and wondered, you know, what of these icons? I've seen them illustrated by other artists like Jim Steranko did illustrations of these characters. But so so there's a lot of these characters that have proceeded that I'm bitten by the bug that George Perez gave me, which makes me want to illustrate almost anything that ever existed in comics or superhero form. <laughs> You're getting there. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm going to stop well short of where George has gone. George will have accomplished that goal. I will probably not illustrate certain things that I just don't give a damn about. But, you know, George is going to touch on so many huge... I mean, I just there's no way to compete with George. No way at all. But, uh, but yeah, I have that drive that comes from just think how much fun it is to sort of walk in the shoes of one character for a moment to recreate uh, a certain visual, maybe even a certain pose in some ways that you absorbed from this character before that you saw one time and found in intriguing, if only even for a moment you found it intriguing. 
Well, just as like one <clears throat> as one comic book fan to another, uh, what what is it about the Golden Age characters to you that uh, sort of withstood the test of time? Because you look at a stuff like the JSA, which you've been doing the covers for, and you're involved with the new story. Uh, Captain America's had a, re- a resurgence. Is there something about those Golden Age characters that beyond just their pop culture value that makes them stick? Well, there's something about the fact that the first time that any of these concepts for superheroes are being applied. So the, the purest distillation of the idea of let's make another version of Superman or Batman, you know, so any of these character properties that came out in that early period, are, you know, their little tiny innovations of story or character or costume, those are the very first before they've been redistilled over the next 60 to 70 years. So it's getting to something that's a little bit more of a pure form. It's a, it's a pure form of heroin. <laughs> Well, that's funny. Good stuff. (laughs) It's not stepped on. (laughs) (laughs) One of the projects that you're sort of attached to right now is the the new JSA storyline, the story by you and Jeff Johns, involving the the Kingdom Come Superman. I'm sort of interested. uh, Did you ever think you'd get a chance to revisit that character in this way again? Um, I figured that there was always a chance to do something. I just didn't know if I was going to necessarily put any wheels in motion myself. A lot of this is, in a a way, an event that fell into place because if I didn't have the relationship with Jeff where there was an invitation to become more involved with the otherwise perfectly successful JSA series and to be able to use that, that playground there to build upon something that related to Just from a, uh, a fan standpoint, I, I've been loving the new storyline. Just mm-hmm. for uh, one of the things I really enjoy about it is um, you see a lot of people talk about sort of how dark comics are, and the Kingdom Come Superman comes from a universe where it was really dark. Yeah, things got really bad. <laughs> yeah, things got really bad, and you kind of can see how the world that the JSA exists in isn't a bad place. You know, they they are good guys. You know, out there, and sometimes. I think fans kind of forget that and they kind of take that stuff for granted until it gets pointed out to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that wasn't much of a question. That was just me. Gu- <laughs> that was just me saying how much I liked it. So, question. Oh, thank mark. you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so, what what kind of working relationship do you have with Jeff Johns as you're as you're doing this project? What's the process like? Well, we we've had extensive talks about the plot going forward, many many issues into the future, and uh, much like the work I've done with. Um, Jim Kruger, an outline is written, uh, breaking down the, the basic thoughts about what's going to happen in the issues to come, and uh, I get a point of either comment or addition to that, and, you know, I've given already copious notes on many of the forthcoming issues, breaking down how I see our developing storyline and the, the new characters we're bringing on stage to continue to develop that. So there's elements of design I'm continuing to incorporate and, and, and add into the process, and generally from 
my collaboration with Jeff thus far for little bits that have preceded this Kingdom Come arc, things that I've contributed have made their way through. I had a lot to do with the resurgence of Steel, uh, the, the, the Citizen Steel character in the new storyline. I love that character. I love anyone who's, his powers are, he's sort of crippled by them, you know? Like, yeah. it's not, nothing's easy for him. But that brings up another question I wanted to ask, actually. Chris asks all the technical ones, and then I'm going to ask all the nerdy ones. So I'm going to ask, just as a comic book fan, what was your reaction to uh, DC deciding to bring back the multiverse? Uh, you know, I don't have the same way of looking at it as somebody on the outside, because I know how these kind of things were being manipulated on the inside, and I'm not as enthused as I ought to be. I'm sort of like, oh, okay, I expected that to happen, or this is something that's a good evolution, but, you know, to, to ultimately return to something that was an idea that most of us liked anyways, not exactly loving every part of the way they get around to this point. I think that they should have already had that happen by the end of the first new crisis. You know, they didn't get to it with uh, 52, really. You know, 52 Worlds was kind of a weird sort of halfway point, and what they accomplished the next time around, well, maybe this will get it right. Who knows? But it's a weird kind of thing that it, it's so much they've, they've they've been locked into an event structure over at DC because it's their only fearful way of making any kind of sales of comic books these days that they have to try and drag people kicking and screaming into buying the comics these days with like another crisis and then another yeah. and there's one more. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've I've enjoyed parts of it so far, but from you know a fan fan sort of. Is it going to be yeah. called? Is it going to be called Final Crisis? Question mark. Well, it's just like part of me, and I don't know if it's just because I've you know matured as a reader from when I was a kid, but I kind of wish things would have a chance to breathe sometimes, and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, when a story like The Kingdom Comes, Superman comes up, that's a story I think worth telling. But you know, sometimes you see stories that come up, especially with event comics these days, where it's sort of like, is this really necessary? Is someone dying to see this story come out mm-hmm. right now? Well, it sort of waters it down a little bit. That's the way I feel too. I'm, I'm often, I'm very disheartened by a lot of the things I, I think are happening too often in the business. Well, you see, I mean, there's, there's some events that have kind of been you know, lost in the crowd in the last year. It's like the death of the new gods should be a big deal. So should the Sinestro War, and I think that they kind of got lost in, in the, the wave of event comics that are out there. Well, now DC, as far as I understand, has intended the death and, you know, eventual, you know, what, what they're doing following this with the new gods, you know, they're intending that to be a big part of this whole all-over Final Crisis thing, so everybody's meant to pay a lot of attention to that and to care, uh, so that's not supposed to be a small thing. Now, out of, out of the 52 worlds, have they made one like the Alex Ross one? Do you get, like, Earth, like, 32 or something? <laughs> Well, I mean, oh, you mean like what is the Justice Earth or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, you you should have a sandbox over there. You know, there's 52 of them. They should give you one. Well, if if they decide to do anything like that, I'd like to get a contract that proves I'm the only one who can do anything with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you got your name attached to it, you don't want anyone else coming through and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, messing around with what you've done. Get away from my world, Busick. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. Like the whole thing with... Uh, with having Grant Morrison come upon Jack Kirby's New Gods and decide you know, how he's going to remake them in his own image, it just strikes me as the oddest thing that the legacy of Kirby's New Gods to DC Comics will be amended, you know, by a creator who comes along 
who's not even a, an artist, create, writer, creator. He's a writer primarily who's going to say, I'm going to make this redesign of this guy here and rethink this concept there and bring a further step to the overall New God's ethic when, you know, in a way, it's been untouched largely for the last 30 years from when Kirby left it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it really shouldn't evolve too much. I mean, in a way, if you want to have it sell better for your company, just get better artists to work on various specials and uses of the characters as opposed to destroying and rebuilding them. Do you think that that's kind of the one of the strengths of comics, though, is that you know we've seen some you know abuse of characters from time to time um, through through comics history, but there there seems to be uh, kind of a healing time there where it's like yeah you know what eh, we can kind of forget about that and bring bring a guy back around you know I see well, what what Jeff Johns did with Green Lantern. Well, I, I think, think sometimes a, the uh, abuse is only really apparent afterwards. <laughs> You know, some when someone adds something good, sometimes mm-hmm. it can kind of be forgotten that it was added on. I would make a comment in comparison to, like, say that you know, you bring up Hal Jordan and, and Green Lantern. I'd say that all the stuff that was written very well about Kyle Rayner could have been written about Hal Jordan, and the only reason that could be a bad thing is that it wasn't written about Kyle or, or Hal was that a generation that grew up reading. Green Lantern from the 1950s, you know, that knew this character with this very classic, no need to change costume design uh, and, and background history was the same all the way up until this generation in the early 90s, where then for the next 10 years, the next generation had this slightly amended character that now causes a rift between people who understand who this person is. And unlike Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, so many icons, and the majority of Marvel's icons, we can't have this shared thing between generations like exists throughout most of the primary superhero properties. I would think, though, sort of in the sort of counter that would almost be, for me, my favorite Flash is Wally West. You know, that was the Flash that when I was, you know, eight, I started reading. But I don't necessarily feel like Barry Allen got screwed over with what they did with that character, because in a lot of ways, I feel that character sort of came into his own, and now when we do see him come back, when certain writers bring him back for whatever reason, I almost feel like it's a, it, he, it gives that character a deeper meaning, you know, necessarily bringing him wholesale back or having not done that to him. You know, I wouldn't consider that an abuse. You know, well, I would character. say it's abuse in, in some ways because all that Barry Allen did to get the fate, to, to deserve the fate that they dealt him, was sell less than he, than he should have. You know, his numbers weren't as strong and his storylines were tumultuous because they were trying to compete with Marvel's greater ambition or ability for melodrama back in the 70s. So they started to do a lot of crazy things with the character and they got so crazy to the point that they decided, you know what, let's just kill him and rebirth him as a different guy. And that's not the, the fault of the character, that's the fault of transient creators over time who, just, who come in and make deposits on the character as they go along and then they move on and yet the character might be destroyed in their wake and that's why I'm one of those people who says at the end of the day I love Wally West but I love him as Kid Flash because he's the nephew of the guy you know Barry Allen's the guy who was working in the in the environment that would actually lend itself to having the whole chemicals and lightning collision and he had the dual identity that would allow for the kind of things that would be good for you know flash to be a cop as well as a superhero 
And, you know, Wally West is connected to a historical lineage that, whereas I understand it, it's completely confusing when you begin to introduce the concept to a larger group of people. And, you know, again, these are, these are, uh, things that generally DC does that Marvel doesn't seem to fall in the same trap for as much. You know, we, we have mostly all the same guys inhabiting the same costumes at Marvel successfully for the last 40-some years. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think a lot of that comes from, you know, the original singular vision of Stan Lee, that he kind of set the, the boilerplate that, that Marvel grew out of, that it was kind of a, you know, kind of from one seed? It might have helped that in a way, um, Marvel set very good boundaries of how important those individual people were. That, like, no one else should be Iron Man but Tony Stark. And, you know, given the pathos surrounding that character and the invention of it. But, and, and whatever, just maybe the fact that the comics were written better in the 1960s than they were in the 1940s. So we often feel like we can amend the DC stuff for being silly by comparison, especially because DC's writing level was never comparable to Marvel's back in the 1960s. You know, Marvel took a giant leap forward for mankind in that time, and uh, and DC was still producing giant Jimmy Olsen stories. <laughs> Turtle Boy story. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, without, without that great Turtle Boy characterization mm-hmm. that the kids loved so much when they, <laughs> when they picked it up. When, when you grew up, Alex, I mean, were you a Marvel guy or a DC guy, or were you pretty indiscriminate? Did you like both companies? Well, I... I I didn't understand the idea of why you gotta stick with any one team. I still don't understand that even psychologically for our, our various cities that somehow we have to be fans of wherever the team is we live at. You know, they might be terrible people. Why are we fans? Watch what you say. Uh oh. Uh oh. Well, I'm just saying. saying. You know, to, to me, the whole idea of being a Marvel zombie, I came to really hate in, when, when the term developed in the 1980s because I remember I was certainly familiar with the X-Men. I knew how good they were when John Byrne was doing them, but I couldn't understand their absolute absorption of culture to the point that, you know, you had some fans that they just wouldn't look beyond the limitation of the one company they followed. Mm-hmm. And I had the kind of desire to see everything that, you know, I wanted to see all those characters seem legitimate to me. I, I saw them on an equal cultural level. For me, anyway, it was creators like Frank Miller that kind of woke me up whenever he would go back and forth from Marvel to DC. I, I kind of fell in love with him in the in the Marvel Universe with Daredevil, but whenever he started working on Batman, I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess it's okay to read Batman now. And so it was, you know... <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe all these events will ch- uh, chase people into reading stuff outside their <laughs> outside of their comfort zone. Usually, you know. Oh man! Sometimes that okay ends up to like... read DC now. Well, Neil Adams will be so happy to hear that. Boy, <laughs> like I was I to. was twelve. So, all yeah. right, all right. The, you know, DC was DC was always the kids' comics, and yeah, I think that you know leads into something something else we wanted to talk about. I always I always pictured DC as the kids' comics because I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons and Challenge of the Super Friends, and right. so that DC were they were the comics of the folks that I watched whenever I was, you know, a young kid. Now, you, you've you kind of talked about it before. You have a real affinity and an affection for, for Challenge of the Super Friends. Can you talk, talk about that for a couple minutes? Well, it's uh, it's nothing to be proud of, that's for sure. It's um, awesome is why. <laughs> I've done a, a giant series to, you know, pay 
tribute to a really terrible cartoon show from my childhood. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was all we had back then, of course. Yeah. And uh, the idea that you've got all the characters on stage with all the villains, and not just, you know, any lame-ass villains, all the best yeah. kind of arch-nemesis villains together in one group. And, um, you know, it was a bold thing back in, whatever it was, 78, 79, when that came on. Um, so, you know, I, I I realized after doing all these kind of other projects I had between, like, destroying everything in Kingdom Come or uh, doing these one-shots with the very superheroes, that I still had this thing burning in me to do like, pretty much your standard hero, heroes versus villains kind of series, and uh, and Justice was a fulfillment of that that lurking fan desire. So I did laugh out loud in the the third volume when uh, when they're in Cheetah's uh, city and Plastic Man said uh, form of a giant lawnmower. <laughs> that got you, huh? Yeah, yeah, that one. I, I I did have to laugh out loud on that, and there were some there were some fun there were some fun moments in that series, especially. Well, if don't you, tell Jim Kruger that because it will go to his head. <laughs> yeah, and he All made that, you laugh. Oh, that that was his idea. Oh, well, that was one of his little cute lines. He loves to, uh, Jim thinks he's a hell of a lot funnier than he really is, and he won't stop trying to write funny bits and this stuff, so <laughs> I keep telling him how he's not funny at all, but he doesn't listen to me. I think it was just a couple pages after what wasn't a funny line, but I think one of the best Batman lines I've read, and it's when Grodd is talking about their their new uneasy alliance, and he says it's it's a necessary evil, and Batman looks at him and says there are no necessary evils, and I thought that was an awesome Batman line. Oh, that, yeah, that was, that was. Chris pumps his fist triumphantly. Yeah! yeah. <laughs> throws the book to the ground and does a dance. That's how much he enjoyed that. <laughs> I was always angry when the Wonder Twins episodes would come on. That's why I saw them in reruns as a kid, and I loved the challenge ones, because, mm-hmm. you know, you got to see Solomon Grundy, you know, and I loved that as a kid. But then when they'd have the ones with the Wonder Twins, and they were always just fighting, like, industrialists. That yeah. always, like, really disappointed me. <laughs> <laughs> I was always like, ah, oh, I don't care if they stop pollution. Yeah, I want to see him stop Solomon Grundy. Yeah. You know, that's way cooler when you're seven years old. You know, I don't know if you guys ever saw this, but a number of years ago now, I did a, a drawing for Wizard at their request for their, uh, was it, um, their April Fool's issue. And I did a piece, a painted piece of the Wonder Twins as if Paul Dini and I were planning on doing a one-shot book based upon them. <laughs> it was meant to be an obvious joke that people would have looked at it and thought, oh, they're not going to possibly do that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and everybody believed that we were that lame. You mean comic fans fell for something? They, <laughs> oh, they fall for stuff all the damn time. They're <laughs> falling for it right now. Yeah. Wherever they are, they're falling for something. <laughs> they're falling for something. Yeah. Well, you know, for a lot of a lot of non-comic fans, that series still resonates. You know, my my wife, she she won't read a comic book to save her life, but every time I go to a comic book convention, she always asks me to bring back a Black Manta sketch from somebody. So, <laughs> wow. I That's don't hardcore. Yeah, I mean, I I have no idea why Black Manta, but yeah, yeah it's win baby killer. Why would you want that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a weird request. Your, your wife's odd. Yes, I hope she yeah. doesn't hear this. <laughs> I mean, that is, that's an interesting one. <laughs> you know, he could either be, you know, something you think is a cool character or one of the most hysterically stupid characters ever, but uh, I always thought he was cool. I, I've never been a big Aquaman fan. It's it, He's just one of those characters I've never got, but 
you guys you guys actually pulled it off and made he and Black Manta really important central characters in in the book and made them both pretty cool. I mean, how do you do that with with characters that are admittedly pretty limited? Well, the thing is, you have to have the ambition to do it. I mean, to me, that's much more fun than trying to make a further effect upon. By the way, if I haven't already made the statement for people, Batman's cool. Everybody <laughs> knows Batman's cool. That's, there's no challenge to that. There's nothing I can lose myself in. But if I want to put my resources and my uh, my greatest efforts behind trying to make people fall in love with characters like Aquaman or Captain Marvel's a personal favorite, uh, try and make some of the things that are more lost to youth in terms of it, it takes a kid to really fully appreciate or think some of these things are as, as fun as they can be seen as. Uh, another thing about Justice that that I liked, and I don't know if you've read uh, The New Frontier by Darwin Cook. Oh, sure. Which I thought is is just an amazing piece looking at the Justice League. But there are, there are a couple characters in that that you could say, you know, if you read that, you can say, you know, this is really a story about Hal Jordan. I, I felt that, that that Green Lantern was kind of a very central figure in that, in that series. But in Justice, I don't think that there's one character that you could pick out and say, this is the hero of this series. The thing about the team um, aspect is that that's really what defines both the Super Friends show as well as the, uh, the JLA comic in its classic form, is that these guys operated as a very comfortable unit. Each one of them was a king from their own kingdom, in effect. It, you know, as well as we know, Aquaman literally was the king of Atlantis. In a way, Batman's the king of Gotham, Superman's the king of Metropolis, and so on and so on. They're each from these different cities. So what I mean by that is, in a way, there was a, a very strong level of equality amongst this that's the round table could I effectively tell a story where they were in a way all equal parts that were balanced of maybe one group mindset they represent a society that is cooperative and they don't, they don't all hate each other there's not the same kind of acrimony that you get from certainly the Fantastic Four the X-Men you know the, the Marvel uh, spin on the group superhero aesthetic you know the the real the Justice Society slash Justice League uh, prototype for the supergroup is what Marvel does their revision of when they do all those character groups where they're you know more at each other's throats where they're more filled with melodrama and in the last 25 30 years they've tried to write more of that melodrama into the JLA but that's not what the group was there, really there for to begin with. In a way, they're not a conflicted bunch of people. They've got enough going on in their own lives to hate, that they don't need to sit around and hate each other, and they band together when the time is absolutely necessary to serve as a group unit to face off against what should be an overwhelming threat that demands very busy people to drop everything and finally come together. You know, in my world of JLA, in in, ter in terms of taking it too seriously, as I do, um, <laughs> these are people that really couldn't have a monthly book together. They would have a situation that comes up every so often that could command them all to somehow have to collect. You know, what, one of the relationships that you've talked about before is the one between Batman and Superman. And it, it's interesting to me because I've heard Frank Miller talk about the same relationship, and I think that you guys come at it from kind of different directions he uh when talking about like you know the dark knight returns that you, you look at at these two characters and they wouldn't 
necessarily like each other, but how do you perceive how that relationship is to you between Clark and, and Bruce? Well, I think that what Frank Miller did was very strong, obviously, in Dark Knight, but then what happens when one creative person comes up with a strong idea is everybody jumps on it, and then it becomes the standard, whereas it wasn't the standard before. The standard had been that these were two very well-balanced guys who had a lot in, in common, and their different approaches to superheroing, or whatever the hell we want to call it, was not so at odds that they had to be enemies like the way that Frank extrapolated. Frank has a lot of issues himself that he was working into that relationship, reflecting his own view of the way people interact. Okay, So you could come out with a completely different point of view and say, oh, there's every reason in the world these guys should get along. So I, I don't give all the credence in the world to one opinion of how it needs to go. Frank's is a perfectly suitable and, and realistic one, but there's another way to see it. And that's why at least I wanted to try and put another spin on it, that in a way Batman could be a more humbled figure than he's been portrayed as being in the last 20 years since Dark Knight. In a way, he's a bit of a drag right now, and uh, and that's no fun. Well, uh, hearing you sort of talk about these character interactions, is it interesting to do something like superpowers where you're not, you don't have that sort of template with those characters? Like, you're, there hasn't been sort of a 30 years of history of those characters and then people doing something to that and then a reaction back to that and a reaction back to that. Uh, is that been sort of a challenge to approach something like that without so much history? Well, the challenge has been in a way to be cognizant enough of the original history that was and to at least not insult what had gone before because I don't have all those old comics of mm -hmm. those characters. And going off with a bit of biographical information we have, uh, as well as the visual information, we're building something very much of our own that's having a lot of these guys come on stage all at the same time. So uh, we haven't been fully tested as far as how we're going to build new personalities and new relationships out of these old characters that do have histories that we have to become at least somewhat more cognizant of before we begin to define this more and more and more. So uh, that's only at the beginning stages right now, and it's one of those things that will be further tested by, um, you know, where we're at with this series in a few months and know maybe how, how any of these guys will interact in a way that might be intriguing or at least hopefully some new spin on the, on the superhero archetype. One of the things in, in Superpowers and, and a few other projects that you've worked on is your character designs and redesigns. And I uh, wanted to, to talk for a minute. How, how fun is it for you to, to have a, a slate of characters to go in and design these amazing costumes or to take an iconic character like Captain America and, and redesign you know, what is one of the most recognizable costumes in comics? The designing stuff is much the same way with both things. It's sort of, uh, I mean, because I'm not creating these things from whole cloth, I'm working from whatever the historical version had been and trying to define whether or not there's something that needs either augmentation or, you know, for the sake of making it look cooler to modern, more cynical eyes or something I can play up that maybe has been a lost design aesthetic that maybe even the character itself lost. Like uh, when people see my design for the Green Llama, I got rid of some of the superhero-like elements of his classic costume because he had variations on his look over time 
that included a more robed appearance, which clearly looked much more like a Tibetan monk. And I thought, you know, let me play to the name so that the name reads stronger for people. You know, a llama is not the animal, it is the actual, it's a lamaist, lamaist, I don't know how to pronounce it, a certain kind of monk from China. Right. And uh, Whenever I heard the know, name, I just thought the animal. Yes. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, no, it's, see, that's the thing, that's, that, that's what I've got to work hard to make sure people have some greater enriched understanding of the root of this thing, you know I mean? Because some of these characters are not going to be uh, as strong as others, you know? Others will read very quickly. A character that looks all tough like Black Terror, where he's got a skull in his chest, you're just trying to find something um, slightly intriguing with that that you can do that's not going to just make it look like a slightly different version of the Punisher. You know, although there's not much to change with that, too, because he was certainly a damn good-looking character as he was, and, you know, don't change what isn't broken. So um, just certain characters demanded visual looks, and you can notice by looking at my version of the Golden Age Daredevil, our, our new devil characters, we call him now, um, you know, he's not changed one 1%. You know, whenever you kind of came onto the scene with Marvels, there was no such thing as the the oversized archive editions and and absolutes like we have now. But that's that's definitely something that's come on to the the comic scene in the last few years, and it seems almost tailor made for a lot of the stuff that that you work on. Have you changed your your approach or the size boards that you work on, or do you kind of keep in mind that the stuff is probably going to end up in in an absolute as an oversized addition uh, at some point? I didn't change the size I was working at because it was it was already bigger than the uh, average comic page. If you consider the average comic page is done at around a 10 by 15 live area of artwork, uh, what I'm doing is a little bit more like um, 12 by 18 in terms of image area height. Um, so I really just had to try and keep on top of DC so that they were getting the files um, or the, the initial scans of the artwork was shot at a DPI that would be that would work right when they would sh hopefully print it one day at the size I'm hoping they will mm -hmm. but uh, you know because I can't control what they do and I'm not doing the scanning myself I don't have the facility to scan artwork as large as mine and uh, and also it slows me down if I have to add that to my process when I get a painting done just in time for its deadline, I'm shooting it out through FedEx to whichever company as quickly as I can get it to them uh, because I usually am working to the bone of all my deadlines. <laughs> do you mark it do not bend? <laughs> uh, no, because I figure that, you know, that's nobody's going to read that anyways. I just try and fortify the package strong enough so that nobody can bend it. I always feel like that's an invitation to, yeah, bend, to it. bend it. Yeah, like <laughs> someone, if someone's having a bad day, they're just going to look at it and be like, <laughs> I hate I hate working here, and just crank right in the head. Yeah, I could easily imagine that. Yeah, you got to fear the worst. So just figure that, like, if you can't yourself easily bend the package, then you're in good shape. Yeah. Have you been happy with uh, with some of the oversized editions, like uh, like Kingdom Come? You know, Kingdom Come is a pretty decent accomplishment, given the fact that those files are old and don't are not meant to hold up at that size. So it comes off looking a lot better than it has any right to. But um, you know, I'd love to get something in that format, like Justice, that hopefully we have the file saved at a size that can blow up that large. You know, that can look better for. The, you know, I mean, I wish that Kingdom Come 
had been saved at a better quality so that uh, its final sort of resting place in that format would uh, would look as as competitive as you know like the new frontier book looks phenomenal oh, it's oh yeah that's great yeah. looks fantastic you know but you know the kingdom come one doesn't by comparison because the the stuff is is a, a lower res image that's been blown up much larger than it was ever meant to be seen are there plans to to have justice get the absolute treatment do you know about that yet no they don't usually tell me until well into the process so uh i i won't get that much of a heads up if they ever decide and it, it all comes down to scheduling i think uh they have three hardcovers out now of the Justice series, and I think they got to let those sort of sit out there for a little bit before they introduce a collection of all 12. Well, I'd, I'd say a 12-issue Alex Ross painted series will, might, just might get the absolute treatment, so we'll see. Well, then again, you know, DC backs out of a lot of different formats that they embrace for a period of time, whether it's, you know, statues, action figures, or, or uh, actual product, um, packaging format so they they could decide like oh we're not selling that well of these absolutes so we're going to bail on this before we ever do justice one of the things that we did see with justice that was i, I think kind of new in in your career is that you were working over doug braithwaite's pencils how did you how did you like doing that and can we uh, can we look for more of that in the future no you can't look for the more of that in the future <laughs> <laughs> um it, it had its pluses and minuses. Creatively, it was uh, an interesting thing for me to focus upon how I could uh, beat something up once it was given to me and, and increase whatever volume of the, of the shapes I was given with the kind of rendering I would put on it and look at the pages and think about what kind of color immediately comes to mind instead of just thinking of it from top to bottom. But I think that my drive and where I need to go creatively as a draftsman is to pretty much control composition from, you know, start to finish. And uh, it was a worth, worthwhile experiment, probably for a heck of a lot longer than it needed to go. And um, I'll never do anything like that ever again. <laughs> I was, uh, how long did the series take you? It was uh, almost three years you were working on it? Well, uh, the concept in terms of selling it to DC and getting the deal worked out makes it closer to a three-year deal, but the actual production time on the book was, on average, uh, two months per issue. So on what I was getting, you know, if I was getting the right amount of pages per month, which wasn't a given, um, I would be doing 14 pages of painted, uh, painted uh, top finish work on top of Braithwaite's work. So uh, every month had me staying up pretty much till five in the morning every single night of the week, and that's not what I expected. I thought that I would have more breathing room in there, but every page itself took at least two, two and a half days, somewhere in that neighborhood, and it was it was much more than I could bear. I can see why you're going to go in a different direction now. <laughs> yeah. Before we let you go, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure and uh, and mention? Oh, jeez, I don't know. Have I I need more to plug? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I probably didn't answer your question fully before. You asked me something about that Captain America thing. Oh, yeah. What was it like to uh, to redesign uh, such an iconic costume like Captain America? I was fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was okay. It was cool. <laughs> I did a different interview this morning where they were saying, like, you know, you care so much about the original characters and you get upset when they change them, so what let you, you know, design redesign Captain America? 
and you know all I can come back with is like oh because it's me doing it this time you know <laughs> um, you know the truth is is that I approach it thinking hey this is a version that's only going to last for a period of time you know it's finite and it really operates around the story that Brubaker and Epting are telling so I don't feel like I'm making a permanent scar upon the history of the character by coming up with a, a slight change in his, the look of his clothing because uh, ultimately you know he's going to the classic will always remain and will always come back especially at Marvel I feel you mean that they're going to hold on to those iconic costumes because they do things like put them on lunch boxes and backpacks and stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, they'll still mess with things, and they'll still try and, you know, freak people out with think, making you think that this is a permanent change, and Superman is blue, and all that kind of crap, but, you know, they they kind of know more, I think, understand the fact that these these characters are, if, if they're not icons already, the company needs them to be seen as icons. Sure. Absolutely. You know, which is why, like, say, when Warner Brothers Studio Stores were around, and they had a lot of merchandise being pumped out of there of the DC characters, and DC Comics was adamant about, well, if you do Green Lantern in this shot, he'd better look like Kyle Rayner. It's a whole different world market that's being reached there that, you know, that world market largely knew, say, the Super Friends show. They didn't know, they don't know the current comics. And surprise, surprise, it turns out that those current comics don't make as large of a cultural impact as the stuff that makes it out there into cartoons and movies and product and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think there could be a greater synergy synergy of all those forces. Well, Alex, uh, the thank you again so much. Uh, the best place for folks to keep up with your projects or just what's going on uh, with signings, appearances, etc. Uh, is it uh, alexrossart.com? That's right. Well, Alex, this is this is our our New Year's Eve episode is when we're releasing this. So <laughs> so we want to we want to wish you a happy holiday and well, let and me a happy say to anybody who's listening to this on New Year's Eve, please don't let this drive you to suicide. Please. Yeah. Christmas was awesome. <laughs> that is my wish. If you honor any wish, please do not kill yourself after listening to this. Well, I tell you what, we've taken up so much of your evening. Thanks a lot, man. And, Thanks. Uh, no problem. You have a happy holiday. You too. All right. Thank bye-bye, you. Alex. Bye-bye, guys. And that'll conclude our conversation with Alex Ross. Big thank you to Alex. He was a gracious guest, and it was a true pleasure to talk with him. That's a great way to wrap up our slate of 2007 interviews and a good way to kick off 2008. We do have some great interviews coming up in the next few weeks, so hopefully you will come back for those. And remember, you can always browse past interviews and other episodes at aroundcomics.com. get you caught up on the past week's events here is around comics brian salazar with wire to wire comic book news wire to wire comic book news for the week of december 24th 2007 
after recent stints on DC's JLA, Doom Patrol, Blood of the Demon, Action Comics, and the all-new Adam, John Byrne is making a return to comics with creator and writer Wayne Osborne's FX. Newsarama.com spoke with Osborne about the hefty commission piece from the legendary creator. Byrne was not available for comment as he was too busy laughing his way to the bank. Shadowline editor Kristen Simon is looking for the next great superheroine. I'd been hoping to see a superhero book with a strong female lead to act as a counterpoint to our popular Bomb Queen series, but none were forthcoming, so I decided to come up with a contest to create a superheroine for the 21st century, said Simon. The character will be 100% creator-owned, as all Image and Shadowline books are. The winning entry will be featured in their own self-titled three-issue miniseries to be drawn by fan-favorite artist Francesco, and back-end Profits will be split between the creators. While the contest is open to all types of stories, Around Comics would like to remind everyone that tentacle porn is not as hot as it sounds. Speaking of porn, on January 1st, 2008, Alan Moore and Melinda Gebbies' Lost Girls will finally be released in the United Kingdom and European Union. Fair warning, get your copies quick, as the limited supply will most likely disappear within a few weeks due to the high level of pedophiles that are known to reside in those regions. Cerebus creator Dave Sim has given us a peek at his new project, Glamourpuss, at GlamourpussComic.com. What is Glamourpuss? Well, according to the site, it's 333 publications in one. It's the Haute Couture magazine parody that's so six months ago. It's a homage to the classic photorealism black-and-white, beyond-noir comic strips of the 1940s and 50s, and it's the strangest superheroine comic book of all time. If you can't trust Dave Sim, who can you trust? In a move reminiscent of storylines developed during World War II, the UN is joining forces with Marvel Comics to create a comic book showing the international body working with superheroes to solve bloody conflicts and rid the world of disease. The comic, initially to be distributed free to one million U.S. schoolchildren, will be set in a war-torn fictional country and feature superheroes such as Spider-Man working with UN agencies such as UNICEF and the Blue Hats, the UN peacekeepers. Asked why the story was placed in a fictional country, the UN responded by saying, It was the only place that we felt we could actually do any good. Valiant Entertainment announced Friday that the intellectual property dispute between themselves and Valiant Intellectual Properties LLC has been settled. According to Valiant Entertainment, the two parties settled the dispute last month after they filed a lawsuit on August 29th against VIP LLC for trademark infringement, unfair competition, false designation of origin, false description, and false representation. And indeed, that suit was voluntarily dismissed by the plaintiff on November 28, 2007. VECEO Jason Kathari announced Friday that Valiant Entertainment owns all copyrights and trademarks to the Valiant and acclaimed characters, including all right, title, interest, and associated goodwill to the VIP filed trademark applications. Now if someone would just claim all my copies of Bloodshot No. 1, we could put this all behind us. Robert Kirkman announced on his blog Friday that he will be leaving the Marvel Comics title Ultimate X-Men with issue number 93 following the completion of the Apocalypse storyline. The writer of The Walking Dead and Marvel Zombies wrote, 
This arc is something my run on the book has been building toward since I was given the regular writing assignment with issue 75. Everything I've done in the book thus far has been building to this, and the thought of continuing after I'd completed my grand plan seemed like overstaying my welcome. I will have said everything I wanted and done everything I set out to do, so it seemed the time was right. Ultimate X-Men fans were surprised that Kirkman had announced this on his blog and had not mailed it in like he did the rest of the series. Those are your wire-to-wire comic book headlines. Good night and good reading. This portion of Around Comics is brought to you by Ape Entertainment. And now available for order from Ape Entertainment is White Picket Fences. The critically acclaimed series returns in a new prestige one-shot featuring two titanic tales. In the history lesson, an aging mad scientist makes one last dastardly grasp for power. Then in Beatlemania, giant bugs invade Greenview, destroying everything in their path. Find out why Diamond's Scoop magazine named White Picket Fences one of the top ten books of 2007. Order your copy of the White Picket Fences one-shot today from the January issue of Previews. And to purchase the original three-issue miniseries, head to your local retailer or visit us at www.apecomics.com. Every week, our own Tom Caters puts on the professor's hat and takes your questions and gives them the answers that they deserve. Here is the Answer Man. Hola! Welcome to Answer Man. This is the portion of the show where you ask me questions and I answer them, and then you're not happy with the way I've answered them, so you send me an email. Uh, we got a little bit of house cleaning to do with, uh, with Answer Man. I feel perhaps I've put myself on a bit of a pedestal that I, I'm unreachable. When I make a mistake, there's, there's no way for you to rectify it. Well, there isn't. Trust me. I get plenty of emails. I make plenty of mistakes. So let's, uh, let's start off with... Uh, I answered a question last week about Captain America being replaced with a U.S. agent. Uh, this is from our forum, but uh, Artificial Human says... Caters, your USA agent answer was as light as a rice cake. The Super Patriot slash Cap replacement storyline saw the real Cap gun down a terrorist and kick a mutated Ronald Reagan's ass. Why none of this has been reprinted is a tragedy. Well, thank you for telling me what a huge pussy I was with my answer. Uh, I do appreciate that, though. I mean, I, I did as much research as possible, but you know, specifics like that always help. I wonder if you were the one that asked me, though. Because if you did, then you just baited me into that situation. So, and, and I don't appreciate it. But we'll move on. Uh, I believe two weeks ago, uh, I had my girlfriend on to ask me a question uh, about The Flash. And uh, I, I should have realized this ahead of time, but I knew that a girl's voice was going to cause problems. Somebody was not going to like it. Somebody was going to, you know complain but the winner as far as complaints comes from one ed who writes tom i have no questions but i do like your bit on ac i thank you and i'm sort of uncomfortable referring to it as the ac but we'll go with that that said please dump your girl you sound cool she sounds dot 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 not cool ed well, Ed, I thought about it, and I talked it over with my girlfriend, and we're actually going to separate for a little while. Um, 
Not many people know this, but I take your guys' feedback as seriously as as anything. As uh, I'm not a religious man, so prayer offers no solace to me. So emails from anonymous people do. Uh, to me, it's almost like the voice of God. Ed, you're like the voice of God. And I sit there reading this email, and I'm looking at my girlfriend thinking, well, this guy heard us for you know seven minutes and now knows that we're not supposed to be together. Who am I to argue with the, the dispassionate observer who perhaps has seen through the farce that is our relationship? Uh, I'll try and keep everyone updated on this. Uh, I might run a poll on the forums just to see how everyone thinks um, my relationship should go. Uh, I also want to make a note of uh, no, this is probably about two months ago. I answered a question about my favorite music involving superheroes. And actually, I was walking around today, and I heard this song, In the Garage, by Weezer, and it made me flash back to that. You see, that's a truly great song involving comic books, because it also captures very much the loneliness of being a comic book fan, but how secretly cool we are. And on that note, let's move on to a new question. This comes from... One Mr. Sunnyvale Trash on the forums, who writes, Hello, Mr. Caters. Hello, Mr. Trash. On some boards I've read, I've seen people talk about whether or not John Constantine is part of the DCU slash continuity. I'd rather him not be, and just avoid all sorts of crossovers, especially as Mr. Diggle is doing a fine job without any capes in the book. But I was wondering if there is definitive proof that he is, isn't in the DCU. Regards, Sunnyvale Trash on the forums. Well, Mr. Trash, I have bad news for you, sir. He's already been involved in a crossover. Uh, way back in Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, you know, uh, the Swamp Thing crossed over that, and uh, John Constantine showed up on the uh, Monitor satellite. So, as far as that goes, yeah, he's part of DC continuity uh, in that way, I guess. Um, I mean, Swamp Thing showed up again for a panel in, you know, Infinite Crisis, so who knows what it is. I don't think you have to worry about any capes jumping in to your Constantine book, so don't worry about it, you know, don't get all up in a bundle. Though I do have to note that somehow you still managed to get contempt across in your email when you mentioned capes. So, I'm almost praying that they do bring him in. Because I, I, I want to see you twist in the wind, Mr. Trash. I want to see that happen. I want to see you have to read a book with Constantine uh, having a beer with Batman. Or a Guy Gardner. No, I want Guy Gardner to show up, because I'm sure he hates English people. And it'll, be, it'll be a fantastic moment. But, in all honesty, you don't need to worry about it. Even if it is in the DCU, it's never going to cross over. Uh, it's, it's just not... The character just doesn't work anymore. He's been so removed from his roots of being in the DC universe that I think it doesn't really matter. And I also think that arguing about it is about as pointless as this whole segment. You know, it's it's amusing, but you should never get too upset by what anyone says about whether a fictional character exists in a fictional universe of their own or in a fictional universe with other fictional characters. But on that note, I'm going to wrap this up. If you have any sort of advice for me, for Ed, for Sunnyvale Trash, for Artificial Human, because they're all part now of the Answer Man family, if you have anything you want to tell them, email it to me at Tomit Around Comics. I'll forward it on to them. I'll see you next week. God bless America.
We're back with the quiet panelists at work, A to Z of British comics. That's right, and today we're both going to have a couple of E's, yeah? Yeah, I'm going to have a couple of E's with you, John. Okay. Go on, ask me what yeah. my E is. What's your E, Matt? My E is Warren Ellis. Ah. Yeah. That begins with a W, surely. Well, no, Ellis is an E, and I couldn't think of another E. Okay. Cool, what's your E? My E is The Eagle. Oh. What do you want me to tell you about Warren Ellis? Do it. Warren Ellis was born in Essex, which is in England. He started his career in the British independent magazine Deadline, which we didn't talk oh, about for D. Well, we should have done that. Good we, one. We missed a trick. Uh, yeah. Earlier works include Judge Dredd and Doctor Who. It wasn't until 1994, John, that Warren Ellis began working for Marvel Comics, where he did some comics. <laughs> right, for Marvel. Yeah. So <laughs> he just did loads of work, John. That's all you need to know. He did loads of work. He don't titles. It's just the list. It's just the list. He, he worked for Marvel, and then he started working for DC Comics, Caliber Comics, and Image Comics, where he did Gen 13 and various other comics. But what he was got most famous. <laughs> well, you don't need a list, do you? Yeah, yeah, no, no. In 1997, he started doing Transmetropolitan, a creator-owned series in which he did some stuff with Derek Robertson. Oh, right. Yeah. And in 1999, it saw the launch of Planetary. Now, the problem is, you see, John, I'm not really a big fan yeah. of Warren Ellis. You don't actually know anything about Warren Ellis, either. No, no, no. Mainly, I couldn't think of an E, so I just thought we could do Warren Ellis. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's very good. Okay. Well, my E is Eagle. Ooh. Yes, Eagle was a British weekly comic. Ran from 1950 to 1994. The Eagle was created by the Reverend Marcus Morris and he wanted it to be like a Christian antidote to what he saw as the bad influence of American comics. It was read by millions throughout the 50s and the 60s. In fact, it was the most popular comic in British history. Ooh. Two million copies were sold per week. Blimey. Can you imagine that? No. Its flagship character was Dan Dare, pilot of the future. I've heard of him. Yes, he is quite a famous person, man. Okay, so Dan Bear is coming out soon from Virgin Comics, Matt. Oh, is he? Yeah, it's going to be written by Garth Ennis and drawn by Gary Erskine. He's the pilot of the future. Who, Gary Erskine? <laughs> yeah. You know Gary Erskine, he's the pilot of the future. Is he? Yeah. How does he pilot things in the future? Um, by hands. If he's the pilot of the future, who's Dan Dare? Uh, he's the pilot of the future's mate. Oh, right, okay. That's it. It's well, got nothing. Thank you for that insightful insight. No problem. Anyway, we've done a shit job of E. Yeah. <laughs> That's, we stop now. We should try and think of some yeah. and actually read about. So, uh, E, Eagle Comic, and Warren Ellis. That's E in the A to Z of British comics. Don't get your hopes right. up for F. Fanologist.com. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to the quiet panelologist at work as they continue their A to Z of British comics. Remember that you can check out their podcast by visiting www.panelologist.com. You can also find their podcast, our podcast, and other great comic book podcasts by going to the Comic Podcast Network. And that's at www.comicspodcast.com. When he's 
not writing the continuing adventures of Catwoman, Will Pfeiffer is a DVD and movie reviewer for the Rockford Register Star. Here's Will to tell us about what's happening in DVDs. This week I'm looking back at the year that was and offering my picks for the best DVDs of 2007. The top spot, believe it or not, goes to Warner Brothers' long-awaited collection of the Popeye cartoons Max Flesher Studios released in the 30s. Lacking the squeaky-clean attitude of Disney and looking even more whacked out than Warner Brothers, these black-and-white bits of brilliance were perfect little one-act plays packed with violence, surrealism, a muttering sailor, and even more violence. The four-disc set includes more than 50 cartoons, plus plenty of bonus features and other stuff. Buy it, enjoy it, then use it to corrupt the next generation. Warner Brothers also led the league in box sets with top-notch collections devoted to World War II, film noir, and best of all, a Stanley Kubrick set that A, finally put the films in widescreen, and B, included some excellent extras. No commentary tracks from Stanley, of course, he died eight years ago, but there are mini-docs and other bonuses in each two-disc set. And for the first time in America, Eyes Wide Shut is the original unrated version. If you've always dreamed of seeing even more naked bodies at that oddball orgy, here's your big chance, you pervert. And, as if I weren't pimping Warner Brothers enough here, the studio's Blade Runner release, sneaking out under the wire this Tuesday, made the decades of waiting worth it. Alternate versions of the movie, a long documentary, all sorts of making of features, and even an origami unicorn if you bought the limited edition briefcase set. If you had money to spare, this was definitely the set to get. Grindhouse was one of the most fun experiences I had last year in the theater. Unfortunately, I can't say the same for the DVD release, because the Weinstein Company, trying to squeeze every nickel it can out of the double feature, released Planet Terror and Death Proof separately. And then they left off the fake trailers that made the movie so much fun in the first place. Screw them. I'm waiting until I get the whole thing in one big package with plenty of extras, just like that Kill Bill double box set. Speaking of which, when the heck is that coming out? From across the pond, British cult classics If, Performance, and The Witchfinder General brought long-awaited appearances by Malcolm McDowell, Mick Jagger, and Vincent Price to cult film geeks who'd only seen crappy VHS copies of those movies over the years. Hot Fuzz, another British flick, proved that director Edgar Wright and actor Simon Pegg, the comic geniuses behind Shaun of the Dead, were equally sharp when it came to spoofing cop movies, and the DVD included some great extras, tops among them, another presentation by Wright and Pegg revealing their writing process via giant sheets of paper. Finally, Idiocracy barely got released in theaters, almost didn't make it to video, and didn't impress the studio enough to convince them to even cut a trailer. Despite all that, Mike Judge's all-too-plausible peek at a frighteningly stupid future was one of the year's best movies, both terrifying and hilarious. Luke Wilson plays Joe, an average dope who wakes up 500 years later to discover he's now the smartest man in the world. Endlessly quotable and full of bizarre little visual jokes, it's worth the price of rental just to see how the name Fuddruckers changes over the centuries. Well, that's the year in DVD releases, and I'm Will Pfeiffer for Around Comics. You can find Will's written reviews at the Rockford Register Star by visiting go.rrstar.com and going to the entertainment section. You can also visit Will's blog at willpiper.com and remember to read Catwoman every month. Comics aren't just in comic shops and bookstores anymore. You can find thousands of web comics online. 
And Jeremy Mullins is here to save you hours of searching the internet by telling us where to find the best and brightest in the ever-changing world of webcomics. Today I'd like to recommend the work of a Mr. Drew Wang. You can find his various webcomics at drewwang.com, D-R-E-W-W-E-I-N-G.com. Once you're there and you click on the comics button, you'll find that there are, are several features to check out. One is called Set to See. It's a comic about this very unfortunate poet. It's updated one panel at a time. It's really awesome, but the one that I would recommend that you check out first is called Pup. And the body of work that is included under the Pup moniker is quite possibly the prettiest body of work of webcomics online. Uh, this guy is just a hell of a cartoonist. He does some really, really interesting things with the Infinite Canvas, coming up with storytelling devices and layouts that are totally impossible to replicate on the printed page. He has some choose-your-own-adventure stories. His color theory is off the hook. These are just beautiful comics. I just cannot say it enough. They are just really pretty to look at. If I was to recommend one to check out first, it's the one entitled Heat Death. Uh, the pup comic entitled Heat Death is where I would start. His work's been reviewed by the New York Times. Uh, he's made the cover of a book on webcomics called Webcomics. Those of us who are involved in, in the field really think that his work is pretty outstanding. In, in fairness, in the, in, in the interest of full disclosure, Mr. Wang was a SCAD graduate. And you know what? We turn out awesome cartoonists, so check it out. Uh, DrewWang.com. Happy New Year, and for Around Comics, I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study by visiting www.scad.edu. And a quick note, uh, listener David Price, also the host of the Marvel Noise podcast, was kind enough to start a thread on our forum, which keeps track of both Jeremy Mullen's webcomic recommendations and Will Pfeiffer's cult DVD recommendations. So it's real easy. Just go to aroundcomics.com, go to the forum, and you can check all of the past recommendations complete with URLs for the webcomics and IMDB links for the movie selections. Now let's get you ready for the week ahead with new trade paperback releases. Here is Collected Comics Library's Chris Marshall. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying the Alex Ross extravaganza as much as I am. It is time for the new Collected Editions coming out this week. So let's start off with DC and we've got Superman Redemption, the trade paperback. This collects Superman 659 and 666 in Action Comics 848 through 849. This is for $13. And I was actually looking for a Superman Kryptonite, the hardcover, coming out this week, but it looks like that's been pushed back for a few days, so look for that in the coming weeks. We also have JLA Kid Amazo, the trade, collecting JSA Classified 37 through 41. Shadow Pack Volume 2, Cursed, clicking number 4 and 9 through 13. And finally, we also have a Pride of Baghdad. The soft cover is out this week for 13. 
over at Marvel. Well, some things are a little screwed up over at Marvel due to the holiday. Some things were supposed to come out last week, they come out this week, and vice versa. So let's do the books that we know are coming out this week. And this, of course, is according to Comic List and also with help from Midtown Comics. Avengers West Coast, Darker Than Scarlet Trade, collecting 51 through 57 and 60 through 62 for $25. Kind of expensive for a trade paperback there. Miss Marvel Volume 3, Operation Lightning Storm, the trade, collecting Miss Marvel 11 through 17 for $17. X-Men Phoenix War Song, the trade, collecting 1 through 5 of that series. And also Marvel Adventures Spider-Man Volume 8, Forces of Nature, that is a digest collecting 29 through 32 for 8 bucks. And Powers Volume 11, Secret Identity, a book we expected last week, but it's coming out this week, We're collecting Powers 19 through 24. A couple of books that are not on the preliminary list, but we are expecting from Marvel, include Moon Knight Volume 2, Midnight Sun, the premiere hardcover, collecting Moon Knight 7 through 13, Power Pack Volume 1, the hardcover, Collecting Power Pack 1 through 4, Avengers and Power Pack Assemble 1 through 4, and X-Men and Power Pack 1 through 4. That is for $25. bucks. we are also expecting a long-awaited book of Ultimate Vision, the trade paperback, collecting 0 through 5 for 15 bucks. And finally, Storm, the trade paperback, collecting that 6-issue miniseries for 15 from Dark Horse, a series that I'm really enjoying in these Dark Horse archives is Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom. This is Volume 4 for $50, collecting 23 through 31 We also are expecting Savage Sword of Conan, Volume 1, for 18 bucks. Over at Image, we are expecting The Walking Dead Hardcover, Volume 3. This is the signed edition for 60 bucks. And finally, Wanted, the graphic novel, the new printing of Wanted, for $20. Now, Chris wanted me to do a little Alex Ross tribute as well, talking about his collected editions. Well, the more I got into my notes and everything, it really ran pretty long. So what I'm going to do is kind of turn my little segment that I would have done here and expand it into my topic of the week over at the Collected Comics Library. So look for that about January 4th. And don't forget, I just did my year interview special, and I really hope that everybody who listens to Around Comics comes over to my website and downloads at least my year in review if you've never checked it out. It's a very unorthodox show that I do for the year in review show, but I go over everything that came out in the year, recommendations. I do a top ten books that came out and my publisher of the year and a lot of news and notes that we may have forgotten about in 2007. So it's a good year-end wrap-up, and I really hope you guys enjoy it. So look for that over at the CCL. So for Around Comics, I'm Chris Marshall, Collected Comics Library. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library podcast. You can find the podcast, release schedules, and checklist of everything collected at CollectedComicsLibrary.com. Welcome to the new releases for January 2nd, 2008. I am in the unique position of recording this before we know exactly what's coming out January 2nd, 2008. I have the list from Diamond that says what they think will come out January 2nd, 2008. So if there's something on this list that I mentioned that you are desperate to get, you get to the store, it's not there, you cry, you gnash your teeth, you put on sackcloth, you worship your late book gods, it's not their fault, it's mine, I gave you bad info. 
All right, let's move on. Let's start with Dark Horse Comics. We have Lobster Johnson, Iron Prometheus, number 5 of 5, the end of this rather action-packed storyline. I think it's going to be great in trade. Uh, some of the issues have been so action-packed that it makes the story kind of hard to follow. I see uh, we have Star Wars Legacy number 18. I've heard a lot of great things about the Star Wars books from Dark Horse. I've always been sort of intrigued, but I'm not sure what books for me or which one I should jump into. If you have any advice, feel free to email me at Tom at Around Comics. We have the all-new Adam, number 19, from DC Comics. This is going to be a fill-in issue for the regular team of Gail Simone and Mike Norton. We have writing at Keith Champagne and some hack artist Jerry Ordway doing it. I don't think Mike has anything to worry about. Let's go to Metal Men number 5 of 8 by Duncan Rouleau. I've been loving the book so far. Uh, I've heard a few complaints. It's a little convoluted. And yes, the story is confusing. But I love the Metal Men. I love the art. It's been carrying it through for me. We have Countdown to Mystery number four. I have been loving the Steve Gerber, Justiano, Dr. Fate story. I think it manages to quite neatly dodge a lot of the problems with Dr. Fate, avoiding a lot of the convoluted history, moving on from that. Uh, I haven't been as big of a fan of the other story in it, the Matt Sturgis, Stephen Segovia, Eclipso story, but... I'm not going to dwell on the bad. I'm going to focus on the stuff that I like. Uh, we also have coming out from DC Comics, the thing I am most excited about, Teen Titans Year One, number one of six. If this isn't out that week, I will be the one crying and gnashing my teeth. This is the uh, Teen Titans Year One story uh, written by Amy Wolfram with art by Carl Kershaw. If you haven't seen the previews, please go take a look at them. Uh, you might remember Carl Kirschel's art most recently from uh, he did um, Flash Fastest Man Alive number three. That was the one where the art was good. Uh, he had a little bit of art in All Flash number one. He's done some work on Robin. Uh, Amy is famous for writing some Teen, Ti- Teen Titans animated series stuff. This looks like a tremendous amount of fun. Looks like the art's going to be great. This is like a perfect storm. I'm quivering right now thinking about it. Uh, from Vertigo... We have Northlanders, number two. Uh, this is the Brian Wood, David Jean Felice Viking story that is coming out. I liked the first one. Um, bit odd to see uh, your main character be such a raging asshole, but you can kind of get away with it if you also make him a Viking prince. So kudos to Brian Wood for finding that nice balance. Uh, from Wildstorm, we have a book called Wildstorm Revelations. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I think the revelation is that Wildstorm is still putting out books. Let's move on to Image Comics. We have Dynamo 5, number 10, uh, the Jay Faber, Mahmoud Azrar story, which has been, to me, sort of, uh, you get to see the term, the new uh, Invincible tossed around a lot, but this feels very much like, to me, like uh, early Invincible, where he's laying a lot of groundwork for some great stories that are going to be coming out. Uh, we also have for Midge, we have Overman number 205, uh, drawn by fan favorite, at least people who are fans of the show, Shane White. It's a very dense book, but the art is fantastic. I don't think you'll be disappointed by picking it up. We have Sharkman number one coming out from Image Comics. I believe this is a reprint of Sharkman number one from over a year ago. I really loved 
the first issue really loved the second issue wish it came out just a little bit faster makes it easier to follow the story let's move on to marvel comics we have anita blake guilty pleasures number seven to twelve just had to read it because it's been a long time since i've been forced to read an anita blake spot uh you know, there's not a lot from Marvel that I'm going to be picking up this week. In fact, uh, that might be it. I'm going to make up a solicitation for Howard the Duck number 404 right on the spot. This is the one where Howard the Duck jumps out of the book and steals your wallet. We also have something called Ultimate Human number 104. I just like that name. Yeah, let's go on. Uh, from the independent comic side of the universe, we have Hack Slash number 7 from Devil's Do. Uh, Tim Seeley written... Love the book. Uh, does some interesting things in there. You know, Tabor was mentioned in the last issue. If you listen to the show, you know of who Tabor is. You should check out issue number six. It's pretty funny. Uh, from Oni, we have Maintenance, number seven. Uh, written by Jim Massey and drawn by Robbie Rodriguez. This follows a couple of bumbling janitors in an evil scientist corporation. I've been loving this book. It's been, you know, option to be a movie. That doesn't mean it's going to be a movie. But hey, get on the ground floor. So when all your friends are talking about how awesome the movie maintenance is, you can be the dick who says, I remember when it was just a book. So that's it. That's all I have for this week. That's all I know about. There's other stuff I'm sure it's going to be added, but that's all I feel comfortable talking about. If you have problems with this, feel free to email me at I don't give a damn at aroundcomics.com. Thank you and good night. That'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. Make sure to come back on Thursday for Around Comics, the Comic Culture Roundtable. It's an informal and entertaining roundtable discussing the world of comics and pop culture. You can visit us online at www.aroundcomics.com. You can contact the show via email at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also visit us at MySpace and Comicspace. And if you are inclined to do so, you can leave us a review at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for listening today and making Around Comics your source for the best comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We'll be back again on next Monday for another edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, retransmission, or rebroadcast without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2007. Baby, one more time.